You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we chat about grade shifts in recurrent canine soft tissue sarcomas and mast cell tumors with our guests, Maureen Griffin, Bernard Seguin, and Brandon Janssens. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have a fabulous tumor team of Maureen, Bernard, and Brendan joining us. Thank you all three for taking time out of your very busy schedules to be with us here today. Thank you very much for, for inviting us to, to speak with you about this manuscript and our, our research project. Yes, thank you very much. Exciting. Yeah, thanks. Thank you all. Maureen, a first question is going to be for you. Your manuscript in JAVMA discusses grade shifts in recurrent canine soft tissue sarcomas and mast cell tumors. Can you give our listeners background on this topic? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks. Um, For many tumor types that we see in veterinary patients, we know that histologic grade is an important prognostic feature um, with higher grade tumors having propensity for both um, higher rates of metastasis and recurrent disease, um, as well as potential for worse outcomes. Um, And we know that anecdotally in patients that we see um, local tumor recurrence after we've excised the primary tumor has potential to be a different grade compared to the primary tumor. And that's um, a phenomenon referred to as grade shift. Um, There's very limited reports of grade shift in people with different tumor types, um, and that demonstrates the potential for both an increase and a decrease of the grade in a recurrent tumor setting compared to the primary tumor. Um, So they can either have a more aggressive or indolent phenotype upon recurrence. Um, But to our knowledge, that has not yet been described in veterinary medicine. Um, And because we know that grade influences the prognosis and treatment recommendations, we felt that it was important to study the propensity for grade shift with recurrent disease in our veterinary patients. And ultimately, we think it will be ideal to identify risk factors for grade shift, prognostic significance of grade shift, um, as those may influence the treatment and surveillance recommendations that we can offer. Thank you very much. Bernard, out of all the different types of tumors, how did you choose to study soft tissue sarcomas and mast cell tumors for this project? Yes. So um, so first off, we needed, obviously, uh, tumors that are uh, where it's standard to give a grade and provide a grade. So obviously, to study grade shifting, we needed to have tumors where it's standard to grade them. Um, and as Maureen eloquently described uh, the importance of grading for certain tumors. Um, There are tumors where the grade has clearly been shown to have a very uh, high prognostic value. So we needed to obviously take tumors where it's standard to grade. And then we also needed tumors that are relatively common when in the clinical practice. So tumors that are clinically relevant, where we would have enough numbers to uh, hopefully determine and describe grade shifting. So the the two, arguably the two most common tumors where a grade is uh, standard to be provided are mast cell tumors and soft tissue sarcomas. They're relatively common and the grade is of high prognostic value. And therefore that these are the reasons why we settled on mast cell tumors and soft tissue sarcomas. That's pretty fascinating. Uh, I get to take a 
a go at Brendan now. <laughs> Brendan, tell tell us about the journey that your team went through and what sparked this research interest in evaluating recurrent tumor grade shifts. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, you get a window into what our day as academics are like. You know, we will discuss some of these complicated cases that um, have recurrence uh, and try to take that subjectivity, you know, that feeling. We feel that a lot of these cases have a different grade on recurrence to actually putting that into evidence. Um, so actually looking at the, the data and, and coming up with a conclusion. Um, and, you know, as Bernard's already said, this is a highly relevant disease or diseases in our canine patients. So it was important to look at this. Yeah, I like to say evidence-based, not eminence-based. <laughs> right. Well, we have some eminent people on the podcast here. Yes, you do. And we'll go to Eminence Marine next. <laughs> uh, Marine, it's it's difficult to do these multi-center, multi-author, multi-key opinion opinion leaders as who's on the, the Eminence panel here. Um, what inspired you to lead this team and write this manuscript? Oh, thank you. I don't I don't know that I could call myself the, the leader of, of this team. Um, you know, I'm just so fortunate to work with really incredible surgeons, surgical oncologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, um, as well as pathologists at, at CSU. And we kind of put our heads together with this question and um, idea that largely stemmed from clinical cases of, of dogs that had local tumor occurrence and those collaborative discussions that came about regarding um, really questions from, from clients, you know, what is the likelihood that this is the same grade compared to what it was when it was previously excised and how does that influence what they'd want to do moving forward or our kind of additional recommendations from a treatment and surveillance standpoint. Um, so we realized that we didn't know that answer and it's really not been well characterized, but anecdotally, again, you know, as Dr. Jansen's mentioned, we, we do see this in, in veterinary patients. Um, so that really sparked a discussion about the need for this study um, and further discussions about how best to answer this question. Um, as Dr. Segay alluded to, you know, it's these are common tumor types that we see, but there's there were a lot of nuances that we wanted to consider um, to really try and strengthen the results of our findings um, and, and make them conclusions that we could rely on that had kind of as few confounding factors as, as we could. And um, I think that kind of putting all of our heads together and really kind of leaning into our pathology team as well about their thoughts um, to try and kind of eliminate or reduce potential for kind of that variation between pathologists and interpretation of grading um, was very important for our um, uh, how we um, decided to write the manuscript and our, our method, um, our methodology in the study. So Bernard. You're a board-certified veterinary surgeon and a fellow of surgical oncology. How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Uh, I think, you know, having being a surgeon and then being a surgical oncologist, that means that um, day in and day out, I'm immersed in the field of seeing clinical patients and, and their owners that are taking care of their pet. And so you, you are... Uh, you realize what are the challenges that we are faced every day and and not just us as the medical team but also the owner as uh, they need to make decisions and we need to help them guide them make these decisions and of course 
in the world of oncology, prognostic factors are incredibly important to help guide owners make these decisions. And as Maureen alluded to, uh, if great shifting is something that, that can happen, then uh, we need to be aware of that. We need to be able to educate our client that, yes, you know, maybe it was a certain grade before, but now it may be a different grade or maybe it isn't. We needed to quantify what is this grade shifting how does it happen? So we needed to be able to better define the problem. So having this um, training helped us, one, identify what the problem is, what are the challenges that our clients are faced with every day. And then part of our training, I think, is also to think critically, to really be able to um, look at what are the issues, what are the, the, the downfalls, what are the 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 weaknesses of our study so that we we can hopefully um, avoid or strengthen the study, but at the same time be very aware of what the weaknesses are. So thinking critically, I think, is also a very very big part of what we do. Thank you, and your answer actually segues very nicely into my next question, which is for Brandon. So, Brandon, this question is very important for our listeners. What is one piece of information the veterinarian should know before discussing this topic with the client? Yeah, I mean, one piece, I guess, just be aware that this um, this occurs, um, but temper that with um, with always providing some hope to clients with pets with cancer. I mean, I think I could, you, know, you could frame any piece of information either optimistically or pessimistically. I don't think this should be used as this has come back there, you know, this is probably going to be worse. We shouldn't treat your dog. Um, and then also just to, again, um, build on what Bernard said is that this is just, you know, we feel the first step in building around this subject. This is not the, going to be the be all and end all uh, in terms of this subject. Um, I think Marie's done an important thing and, and that has created a base that we can build on in further studies, which is not something we do very well in veterinary medicine. Um, keep building on one subject. Yeah, thank you, Brendan. Uh, we'll take that next manuscript too, happily in Java <laughs> and have another podcast and we can remind each other of where we started and how we got here with your really groundbreaking, important information for our, our owners and patients. So thank you all again. As we start to wind down a little bit, we like to have a really fun question that our listeners love to listen to. And I'm going to go in reverse first name alphabetical order and ask each of you this question. So it'll be Maureen, uh, Bernard, and then Brendan. What is the oldest or the most interesting item in your desk or on your desk or in your desk drawer? Maureen. That's a, a great a great question. Um, I don't know that it's very interesting, but it's probably the oldest uh, as a, a, a kind of rolled up tape measure and, and goniometer that we received as residents um, at Davis for uh, measuring muscle symmetry and joint angles. I can't say that uh, that those have seen a lot of use in recent years, but I still feel this need to keep it with me just in case I might need it for a patient at some point. That's pretty funny. We've heard that a couple of times. Like it's like a safety net for an oncologist to have that in their drawer just to remind them of, of how important it is. Uh, Bernard, how about you? Thank you. I'm going to go with the oldest as well. Um, so for me, it's my stethoscope. Um, it was given to me when I was admitted to vet school, um, and I still have the same stethoscope. And I can tell you, vet school is a long time for me now. 
So I've had it all these years. And uh, as a surgeon, I still listen to our, my patients' hearts and lungs. So um, for me, it's my stethoscope. So thanks to the people that have given it to me, Wojtek, Jedwika, and Jocelyn. Thank you for giving me that stethoscope that I still carry around today. That's an awesome answer. I uh, have been using mine from vet school as well, mostly at my horse barn. And I yeah. took it out the other day and the diaphragm completely crumbled. So <laughs> don't start well, in your tack box. <laughs> so on that point, I actually, two years ago, bought new diaphragm, new ring. So yeah, I had to replace those parts as well. <laughs> awesome. I, I'm an equine surgeon. And I actually still listen to hearts too. It's, it's an important thing to remember that <laughs> bones yes. are a long ways away, but everybody needs a heart. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Brendan, we'll wind up with you. What, what have you got? Yeah, um, so when I first started my fellowship at CSU, Bernard actually scribbled down uh, the weeks, um, what we do every day from a um, schedule perspective. And if anyone knows uh, Dr. Sagay, he has the worst handwriting. And at the time, it made no sense uh, and made me feel even more overwhelmed. But I still have that little piece of paper uh, that I found the other day. So at the moment, that's the most treasured. Thing. The other thing I do is hoard pens. I have pens probably from when I was a student in my desk. Oh, that's really funny. You'll have to laminate the schedule so you can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a scrap piece of paper. <laughs> Very good. I can definitely resonate with the pens thing. I go through pens like it's no one's business. Like it takes me like not too long to kill a pen. I think I just write really hard. So I always have an excessive stack of pens as well. <laughs> and I really like hotel pens, actually. I usually like take them with me and keep them. So, <laughs> but thank you all just so much again for joining us today. And it's been really a pleasure chatting with you. And we hope our listeners learned a lot about this topic and are encouraged to read your manuscript as well. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was very, uh, a lot of fun. Thank you. Of course. To our listeners, you can read Marine Bernard and Brandon's manuscript on our journal's website and in print JAPMA. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to.